I'm a little anxious to be away. And the only thing that I know of in my life that can relieve an anxious heart is the truth of the Word of God. I hope you won't need the defibrillator in the back of the sanctuary when I say that we are not going to be looking at 1 Peter this morning. After seven months, we're going to do something different. The Lord knew I needed something a little different to settle myself. And so he led me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. And in this passage, we're just going to see what we must do for each other while we are separated one from another. And if we do this thing, I believe that all will be well. And that thing is not rocket science. It's very simply this. The thing we ought to do, the thing we must do, you for me and me for you, is to pray. And that's what we're going to talk about this morning as we come to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. So if you have your Bibles with you, if you'll turn there, if you don't have a Bible, look in the pew in front of you, you should find one. In the rack in front of you, you should find one. And when you found your place in 2 Thessalonians, I'm going to ask you to stand so that we might hear read together the word of the living God. Second Thessalonians chapter 2, beginning in verse 16. This is the word of the Lord. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself, the God and Father who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. Finally, brothers, pray for us that the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored as happened among you, and that we may be delivered from wicked and evil men. For not all have faith, but the Lord is faithful. He will establish you and guard you against the evil one. And we have confidence in the Lord about you that you are doing and will do the things that we commanded. May the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and to the steadfastness of Christ. Let's pray together. Father, through the power of your Spirit who is present with us, in this very moment, open your word to us, to the truth of it, to the requirements of it. For we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. In these verses, Paul is saying his farewell. He's signing off on this is second and final letter to the Thessalonians, these people that he is not going to see again on this side of glory. And he says goodbye with a prayer. In chapter 2, verse 16, he prays for the people. And in chapter 3, verse 1, Paul asks for the people to pray for him. And so Paul puts before us prayer as a two-way street, because Paul knows the universal need for prayer. We all need prayer. Do you believe that? And so this morning, we're going to look first at this need for prayer. And secondly, we're going to look at four specific prayer requests that Paul makes. But first is the need for prayer. 
the experiences that Paul and the Thessalonians have shared together, have deeply impressed upon them all how greatly needed prayer is. And we read about that shared history in Acts chapter 17. Paul visited visited their city. When he arrived there, he began to reason from Scripture with the people. And he explained to them and he proved to them from Scripture why it is that Christ had to die and the fact and the reality that Christ has risen again. And many people believed and put their faith in Christ. And so we could say it was a great victory for the gospel in Thessalonica. It was there in that city that these now famous words about the power of the gospel were spoken. These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. That is the power of the gospel. But the victory of the gospel in the lives of people, it always causes a stir. When the chains fall off, the chains of sin, the chains of death, when they go clattering to the ground, the sound reverberates in the spiritual world. And it attracts the attention of the enemy who rushes to that sound and sets to work to try to reclaim what he has lost and to prevent losing anyone else. The enemy wants the chains back on, and such was the case in Thessalonica. The victory of the gospel unleashed the ire, the anger, the rage of the enemies of the gospel, and so a mob of them started a riot that set the city in an uproar, and Paul had to leave. He writes this in 1 Thessalonians, But since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time, in person, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly, with great desire to see you face to face, because we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, again and again. But Satan hindered us. Satan hindered us. This is Paul's acknowledgement of the spiritual realm. What goes on around us? that we do not see is the greatest reason that you and I need to pray. The enemy wants to reuse those cast-off chains to bind us again and to bind the gospel. And so we need to pray. We need to pray for ourselves. We need to pray for others. We need the connection The prayer gives us to the Father and Son through the power of the Spirit. We need the humility that prayer gives us to remember that God is God. And we are not God. We are needy people. We need the courage that prayer gives us to remember the great power of God. The Apostle John writes in his first letter, Little children, and there's the humility part. That's all we ever are, needy children before the Father. He who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. He who is in you is greater than he who is in the world, 
Is that good news? It's through prayer that we access this great one. And that's why all of us, all of us, every one of us needs prayer. Now let's move on and look at the specific requests that Paul offers. There are four of them. The first two are in Paul's prayer for the Thessalonians, and the second two are in the prayer that he requests from them. So look at the beginning of verse 16. Paul begins his prayer there. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ, and then in verse 17, comfort your hearts. That's his prayer request. Comfort in this world. Do you believe we need it? I do. We've already noted the reasons that the Thessalonians may have had discomfort, the stir caused by the falling away of those chains. Life as a believer in Christ can be uncomfortable for them and for us. And so when the world is too much for you, when your life is too much for you, when the news is too discouraging for you, where do you go for comfort. We all know about that thing called comfort food, don't we? Macaroni and cheese, chicken nuggets, queso, chips, chocolate. <laughs> the list goes on and on. Unfortunately, they're also thing known as a comfort bottle. Or maybe your comfort is just tuning out the world and wrapping yourself up in a soft, warm blanket and sitting in front of the fire. I know when the world is too much for me, easy to know where you'll find me looking for an episode of the Waltons. And if you don't know who the Waltons are, you're much too young. You can Google it after the service. Paul's prayer for the Thessalonians, and it would be for us as well, that we don't try to self-comfort, but instead that we would find comfort in Christ. Christ comfort. The word for comfort in verse 16 is a noun, paraklesis. The word for comfort in verse 17 is the verb parakaleo. And in the upper room, when Jesus is telling the disciples of the coming of the Spirit, he calls them the parakletos, the comforter, the helper. And so when we put all these together, and we must do that, we understand that we only find real comfort in asking the Spirit of God to show us more and more of Jesus. Our prayer for ourselves and our prayer for others becomes Spirit of God, Comforter, Helper, Show me, show them Jesus in the Word of God. Give us eyes to penetrate into the actions we see Him doing. Give us ears to listen in to the conversations He has with His Father and with others. Show us the streams of mercy and compassion that build and carry Jesus in a flood to the cross. There is comfort for us in really seeing Jesus that we can't find anywhere else. I'm going to say that one time. There's comfort for you and me in seeing Jesus that we cannot or will not find anywhere else. And so I'm going to pray for you. And I'm going to ask you to pray for me that we really find our comfort 
in Christ. This isn't just preacher speak. It's true. So I'll pray that when we seek to find comfort in other places, that we'll put that thing aside and that we'll yield ourselves to the Spirit of God as He moves us to Christ. Secondly, Paul prays in verse 17 that these people would be established in every good work and good word. Paul uses a different word for good than the one we heard Peter use the last time we were in 1 Peter. Peter used a word for good that we translated as beautiful. And Jesus used that word to describe that act that Mary did when she broke the jar and poured the ointment on him. It was beautiful. It was good. Paul uses a different word for good that means Meeting a high standard of worth and merit. To meet a high standard of worth and merit. And Jesus uses this word also. A rich young man came to him once. And he asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. And so Jesus elevates this word good before this young man and before you. And me, and he challenges us to, to rethink and to reevaluate what we call good because he makes God the focus of goodness. Only God is good. Only in looking to God will you and I ever know what goodness truly is. And so it puts a, a God goal before the young man. If you want to know what's good, don't look at what you do. Look at what God has done and consider why God has done it and go thou and do likewise. Those who seek to be devoted disciples of Jesus Christ look to God to do good works, works worthy of God, works that He empowers, works that have His good and His glory as their goal. This is an elevating word instead of least common denominator, minimalistic. Check off the list works. We're talking about works that rise to great significance, to eternal significance. Bearing in mind that something as simple as offering a cup of cold water in Jesus' name would qualify. Because that could be the very gospel act that God uses to send the chains clattering to the ground for someone who does not know Christ, or God could use it in the life of one already his own to comfort and to provide for their needs. And so I'm going to pray for you, and you pray for me that God will show us what's good, that he'll show us how it is that you and I should be his hands and his feet in this world, doing good works, God works. And then Paul prays for good words as well are the words that you and I speak are they elevated words words worthy of God you and I must pray before we speak Psalm 139 taught us even before a word is on my tongue behold O Lord you know it all together 
Would the Lord approve of what you want to speak? Or ought those words be altered before you speak them? The God who knows us has given us His Spirit to be other than we would be and to say other than we would say were we not believers in Christ. Listen, we are not slaves to our thoughts. God gives us grace so that we can say other than we want to say, husbands, wives, parents, children, roommates, classmates, co-workers, neighbors. Proverbs 18:21. Death and life are in the power of the tongue. So I want to pray for you. And I want to ask you to pray for me that God will give us his grace to speak life words. Wouldn't that be beautiful? God words, words that give life, words that build up. Imagine them being spoken always, all around this room and in the world. Now we come to the next prayer request, the third one. It's the first one that Paul makes for himself. The first one is for release, that the gospel would go forth. The second one is for restraint, that evil would be held back. So Paul asks for two things, release and restraint. Look in verse 3. Paul writes, pray that the word of the Lord may speed ahead. And that simply means that the word of the Lord, the gospel, would proceed quickly and without restraint. This is release. And we have a vivid picture of it on the morning of Christ's resurrection. John tells us in his gospel that he and, John, that he and Peter were running. It's the same word. Running together, but John ran faster, same word, and he reached the tomb before Peter. Such was the joy over the possibility that what Mary had told them was true, that Christ has risen, that they could not be restrained. I imagine someone reaching out to try to hinder them, to slow them down, to catch them by the arm and say, Oh, hold up, boys, now relax. Settle down. Calm down. That person might have lost their arm because Peter and John ran with eager, anticipatory abandon to see if what Mary had told them was true, that Jesus is alive. And so it becomes a picture for us of this prayer request that the gospel would run ahead, that the gospel would speed ahead without restraint, without hindrance, that nothing could latch on to it, that nothing could stop it, that the gospel would do wherever it goes what it did in Thessalonica. Look in verse 1 of chapter 3. Paul says here, as it happened among you. And so Peter reminds these from whom he has asked prayer what happened to them when the gospel came to their city. 1 Thessalonians 5. Our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. You became an example to all the believers of Macedonia and Achaia. Your faith in God has gone forth everywhere 
so that we need not say anything, for they themselves report how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God. This is the goal. This is the great hope of the gospel wherever it goes. Too often, we believe it's unlikely to happen, don't we? And that's why we must pray, because we know it can happen. They say Italy is a tough place to penetrate with the gospel, because the true gospel is chained up there. You can read the statistics in your bulletin that were printed there this morning. It's a place so spiritually dead and dark that it's like a pall is over the entire country. But I know this, I know this from memorizing Psalm 139, even darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. And I know that God has said, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwell in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shown. And so we go there in hope. And you stay here in gospel hope. That the gospel will be released, first of all, in us. That the gospel would go throughout our entire being, every part of it to change us. And then through us, out into the world. That we, like Peter and John, will be full of unstoppable, eager, anticipatory abandon as we speed along with the gospel. I'm going to pray that for you while you're gone. And I'm going to ask you to pray that for me. And then we come to the final request in verse 2. That we may be delivered from wicked and evil men. And so this is a prayer for restraint. Paul experienced in Thessalonica what those who don't have faith can do. And so he prays that the evil that he experienced there will be restrained. I'm quite confident that Paul would rather not face rioters again. And so he asks for prayer because Paul knows that God is faithful. Look at the end of verse 2 and the beginning of verse 3. For not all have faith, but God is faithful. I wish you could see this in the Greek. Because in the Greek, it's the same word, pistis, for faith, and they're put side by side. Faith, faith. No faith, the Lord's faith. They're put together. And when we look at those two words together, we see that no hope, or that no faith, has no hope against the faithfulness of the Lord. No faith has no hope against the faithfulness of the Lord when He is at work. Is that good news for yourself and for others? The hostility toward the gospel is no match for the faithfulness of the Lord when He is at work loosening those chains. The author of these words, Paul himself, is the poster child for this truth. 
He was faithless. He was an enemy of the cross. He was a dogged persecutor of those who loved Christ. But the Lord is faithful. And his faithfulness crushed the faithlessness of Paul. It withered under the faithfulness of the Lord. And the clatter of Paul's chains when they went falling off must have been deafening in the spiritual world. Paul writes in the first letter to the Thessalonians, He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. So I want to pray for you. And I'm going to ask you to pray for me that the work of the evil one will be restrained, that it will be restrained first in our own lives, that it would be restrained in the lives of others, that the work of evil men, evil people, the evil one will in no way hinder the gospel. D.A. Carson, president and founder of Gospel Coalition, great biblical scholar, writes, We don't drift into spiritual life. We do not drift into disciplined prayer. That means we must set aside time to do nothing but pray. We can proclaim our commitment to prayer until the cows come home, but unless we actually pray, our actions disown our words. I prefer that we own our words this morning in commitment to prayer, to pray for the comfort that comes from Christ, to pray for God works and God words, and to pray for the restraint of the evil one and the release of the gospel in us and through us wherever we go. Amen.